Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to hear from Professor Mario Molina, the man who won the Nobel Prize for showing that CFCs were causing the hole in the ozone layer. And the reason that we're bringing you that conversation is because it's not often that you get to hear from a Nobel Prize winner and one that has had that much impact on the planet we find ourselves on. We'll also hear from Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh from the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research. And she'll be telling us the latest on the public perception of the science. Now, I got the opportunity to speak to Mario because he was doing an event at St. Paul in Minnesota. And here's Rebecca Nesbitt, who's one of the organisers at the event. It's the Nobel Prize Inspiration Initiative. It's an event that happens around the world, taking Nobel laureates to universities and research centres with the objective of inspiring young scientists and bringing the laureates in very close connection with the young scientists. Uh, They will give lectures. We had a really interesting panel discussion yesterday about grand challenges and also meet students very informally, having lunch with them and doing roundtable discussions where they're free to ask any question they like. Uh, And this event in St Paul that we're at at the moment is done in partnership with 3M. Having never spoken to a Nobel laureate before, my first question was naturally, how did it feel to win that prize? Well, it was amazing because I... I, first few seconds or minutes or so, I didn't quite believe it because there were no precedents for Nobel Prizes in, with issues connected with the environments. We were, of course, also doing fundamental sciences, and I had been sort of warned by some friends. I might be on some lists, but I didn't take it very seriously. But uh, fortunately, I had some other friends in Sweden, uh, some colleagues, science colleagues that were also on the boards that uh, to to choose the Nobel laureates and they came on the same phone call on and then I realized it was indeed correct and it was of course uh, a big surprise but extremely rewarding but eventually of course we realized it's also a responsibility we need to to help society to deal with the, the problems that we think need to be solved such as climate change and fortunately uh, with the stratospheric ozone depletion, we were we, we kept working hard, but we certainly now know that the problem has essentially been solved, and the ozone layer is already recovering. But we do have a lot of work to do with climate change. Yeah, for sure. And has the did did winning the prize? I know you said that it became a responsibility as well, but did it did it change the way? that people dealt with you? Do you feel like people are more starstruck since you won it than when they talked to you or anything like that? Yes, what happens, and that's just the nature of the Nobel Prizes, fortunately, that we we then have easier access to decision makers at very high levels, heads of state and so on. So uh, it it's easier, and that's, again, part of the responsibility that we have to use that advantage to try to communicate... Uh, what we believe is rational and what we believe is for the benefit of society. I'll give you one example. I became a member of uh, of PICAS, which is the... There's a group of scientists in the United States that advises the president. I was a member of of this uh, 
group with the Clinton administration to begin with, and then again with uh, President Obama. And with President Obama, we were able to uh, work hard w with the climate change issues, which, as you know, President Obama did, did uh, support uh, strongly. But this group is science advising, so we, we have to deal with many other issues connected to science related to health and to all sorts of uh, art, uh, other issues, artificial intelligence, and so on and so forth. So it's just a very interesting and rewarding experience, but also with uh, high responsibility because we were communicating directly with President Obama on many occasions. Yeah. And do you, do you, do you watch the, the prize announcements each year with, with great interest? Or do you kind of play a game predicting who you think is going to win and everything? No, I, I, I do watch them, of course, because it's, it's by experience we know it's very important and it's amazing how important many of the prizes have been for the development of science. In fact, that's one of the issues that when, when you first receive this news that makes you, how should I put it, satisfied, but at the same time it, it's uh, honored because in the past some of the a scientist that really revolutionized uh, science for the betterment of, uh, of mankind for many years were also Nobel Prize winners. So it's amazing the success stories that come out of, of, of uh, Nobel Prize winners, of course. But many are in different fields, so I'm, of course, interested but not familiar with the details of many of these other fields, for example, in the biological, biochemical sciences, but then eventually I, the, the other big advantage of being a laureate is that you get to, to have many friends, laureates themselves, who, that are uh, that have fascinating experiences and have done fascinating science that you can learn and talk to them uh, about what they have done. And of course many of them, like myself, have changed not they not, not kept doing the same science they've always been doing, but uh, moved to other aspects of the general problems of society involving, for example, education. I wasn't around at the time, and and I'm wondering whether I, I'm thinking of Isaac Newton's famous quote about standing on the shoulders of giants. And what, was this built on a, board, a body of knowledge that was already there, or was it a, a sort of brainwave that you had, or you know, how did you start thinking about it in the first place? The way we started, with, that was with my colleague, Sherry Rowland. Uh, I started working with him after finishing a PhD at Berkeley in just very fundamental sciences, and my colleague, Sherry Rowland, was also working just with fundamental physical chemistry. But we decided to learn about the atmosphere and learn about atmospheric chemistry by choosing just the problem we didn't know uh, whether it would work, but we chose a problem out of curiosity, which is what would happen to these industrial compounds, not of natural origin, what would happen to them in, in the environment. So something was known already about the ozone layer, the stratosphere, and in fact, it was our colleague uh, Paul Crutzen who shared the Nobel Prize with us that had earlier uh, identified some natural uh, uh, chemistry, natural catalytic cycles with nitrogen oxides that control the ozone layer. So something was indeed known uh, already, but uh, 
atmospheric chemistry was sort of in, in its infancy at that time, and of course in the last uh, decades a lot more has been learned about the, the atmosphere itself and its chemistry. So in some sense our research was also fundamental science that helped to uh, really get acquainted and learn how the atmosphere functions, particularly for the, its chemistry that turns out to be crucial to understand uh, the sort of uh, protections that we get in the atmosphere in its natural state. I might be wrong on this, but my perception is that the public accepted your science, that, that the CFCs were affecting the ozone layer far more readily than they've accepted climate change as a, as a science. Is that, is that your perception too? That, and if so, why do you think that your bit was more accepted more easily? Yes, I believe that's indeed the case. The first reason is that we were dealing with a simpler problem and also these chemicals were produced mainly by large chemical industries, five or six of them, and we were able to communicate with them from the very beginning. And of course, at the beginning, they were not in agreement with us and they thought uh, they should not have to stop their production or limit it in any way of these chemicals just because we had a theory. But uh, in subsequent years, this theory became very well tested uh, to the extent that uh, first the main chemical company was the DuPont company had already made a commitment to stop produ producing these chemicals should the science become well established. And when it became well established indeed, uh, for example, as, as, as uh, stated by reports from the National Academy of Sciences and so on, then the DuPont company accepted that and by that time we had already induced them to produce other industrial chemicals that would also work as refrigerants and they could also keep selling but would, that would not affect the, the ozone layer. So in a nutshell, we were able to collaborate with industry and then of course with decision makers in government, diplomats and so on and with heads of state so that uh, an international agreement, the Montreal Protocol, was agreed upon in the 1980s, essentially by all the nations in the planet. Climate change, unfortunately, is more complicated. Uh, as uh, we know, it's, it's caused mainly by burning fossil fuels, although deforestation also helps. Uh, and fossil fuels are very much ingrained in the economies of developing as well as developed countries nowadays. So it's much more difficult to change the use of fossil fuels than it was to, to change just the, the use of, uh, of the CFCs. But there's one more complication, which fortunately we were able to avoid with the CFCs. I mentioned that essentially all the nations in the planet agreed to, to stop that. But with, with uh, climate change, it took a lot longer, as early as the 2009 or so, practically, uh, all the heads of state at that time had agreed that they, something should be done about climate change. And they summarized it, as we had suggested, that by saying we need to change emissions in such a way that the temperature, the average surface temperature of the planet does not increase more than 2 degrees uh, Celsius, something like 3 degrees Fahrenheit or so. 
and uh, it took another number of years until uh, 2015 for the negotiators to seriously accept what the heads of state had already agreed upon, but that's when the Paris Agreement was uh, signed, and practically all the countries in the planet agreed with that to take voluntary measures to begin with, but to decrease emissions to deal with the problem in, in some sort of a initial way that would later could be strengthened. And th that's uh, very encouraging, just like the Montreal Protocol, the one discouraging news is that at the moment there is one head of state that doesn't agree with this, and that's uh, Donald Trump here in the United States. And we believe it's for, there are no good reasons for that. There are just political reasons. Many industries are willing to change because they understand the signs and it, it, it's, it's very clear. And many companies, many uh, mayors of different cities have agreed to collaborate, certain states like California, Massachusetts as well, but the administration of, of uh, President Trump does not. We believe that's highly irrational and hope that's just a temporary offset that uh, we will be able to, uh, as a society, to deal with this problem. We don't have that much time left before we get into big problems, but we hope we will be able to deal with it. Uh, when you've been speaking to politicians over the years, have you experienced politicians changing their mind based on the scientific evidence? Yes, the, with some problems. First, let me point out that with the CFCs and the Montreal Protocol, the, the ozone layer, to begin with, we had similar problems. We, we could not communicate directly with politicians when we did. Uh, some of them expressed out, but eventually they all agreed with the science. With climate change, because this issue became politicized, somehow or other in the United States it became part of the Republican Party to question the science of climate change, which was something completely irrational. And that, that has been explained by a number of authors by indicating, of course, that there were some interest groups that were able to fund, for example, the results that convinced many people that there were some doubts about the science of climate change. So that was just explicitly done on purpose so that the, the government wouldn't act soon enough. But we know that's, uh, that, that's irrational. That's uh, something that is not uh, uh, acceptable. And uh, ironically, with the Montreal Protocol, we work with many <coughs> Republican government uh, people that are very much on our side nowadays. But it's the, many of the current Republicans, the, the people that are currently in Congress in the United States that have these doubts. And it, it's again because of these very concerted efforts in the press to question the science have been uh, successful and we in the scientific community have been sort of slow in terms of responding to these irrational questions we believe and so we need to go out and make a big effort to put the science where it, where it should be and explain that it's not the science that tells us what we need to do but the science tells us what would happen if we do not stop emissions but it's out of uh, 
the values that we have to protect future generations and even our own because things are already happening. It's these values of that we want the benefit of society that impel us to advocate that uh, the emissions should certainly be reduced and eventually stopped of the gases that are affecting the climate, and mainly carbon dioxide. Thank you so much for talking to me. I'll let you get back to the event. And uh, also, thank you so much for fixing the planet that we live on. Oh, I'm really pleased to be coming to talk to you. After speaking to Professor Mario Molina, I wondered if there's anything that can be done to persuade those people who, even after all these years and all the evidence, still refuse to accept the science of climate change. So I spoke to Lorraine Whitmarsh, a professor of environmental psychology at Cardiff University and part of the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research, which brings together scientists, economists, engineers and social scientists to look at the numerous aspects of climate science. Lorraine's research focuses on how people understand the environment and how they are affected by the environment, in particular perceptions of climate change and interventions which might encourage people to lead a less carbon-heavy lifestyle. I'd like to think that support for climate change denial is dwindling in numbers, even if the remaining few are still making a lot of noise. Here's Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh. I'd say there's probably a fairly steady something like 10 or so percent of the population who are kind of, let's say, hardened sceptics who really, you could tell them anything, you could completely, you know, show them every scientific fact um, there is about climate change and they just wouldn't change their mind. They really don't think that there's any human influence, um, even if they might accept that there's sort of natural variation and that, and that there is change in the climate, they wouldn't accept there's any human influence. So there's there's a good yeah 10 or so percent, I guess, of the public in this country. But there's sort of a bigger proportion who might express some doubts and and as I mentioned particularly around sort of impacts and whether is it as bad as they say and to what extent do I really need to change my behavior and so on so there are other doubts but I'd say what in terms of climate denial there's there's a not a large proportion but a a proportion that probably um isn't necessarily going to decrease anytime soon. It's it's kind of staying fairly stable. Mm. Is there, there's a, there's a school of thought, and um, I think is fairly well established that the denial of climate science sort of stems from directly from the fossil fuel companies and the people with a vested mm. interest. Is there any uh, research that's been done to show that that is true? Yeah, there is. So I think it's Naomi Oreskes um, and and others have looked at the sort of denial industry. Um, and so there are these lobby groups associated with um, fossil fuel companies um, and, and sort of uh, right wing think tanks. There's this kind of nexus of influence uh, that they seem to be having in terms of lobbying, particularly in the US, but to some extent elsewhere. Um, and so they are extremely vocal and there is this sort of feedback loop as well where so they're the ones that are sort of let's say producing the messages around denial but then there's also then the audiences who to some extent want to consume those messages too and so that's that's more where my own research has looked is like why why are there people who believe those messages when mainstream science is saying something very different um and yeah, so there's some interesting psychology around that. But you're absolutely right that there is a there is a sort of almost a, an industry there that's generating these messages. Why is it then that that people might believe in the messages being put out by the climate denying community when the science is so clear? Yeah, so I think 
part of this comes down to the fact that climate change is not a sort of self-evident thing. We, we learn about it through usually the mass media. Um, the messages that we get there, of course, are quite polarised. They're very varying. And so depending on what newspaper you read or what television channel you uh, watch, then you're going to get different messages about, about the issue. So it comes down to who we believe uh, about the issue. Then it also comes down to whether we want to believe those messages. So one of the things about climate change is it poses quite significant challenges for our beliefs and our, about our lifestyles, about what quality of life means, about social equality, um, distribution and so on. And so for a lot of people, particularly in developed countries where we have quite energy intensive lifestyles, the implications of believing in climate change are a bit uncomfortable. It means that we have to potentially give up things that we might um, have uh, quite strong attachments to, like air travel and eating meat and uh, uh, various other things. Um, and so in that sense, people associate messages with climate change with kind of bad news, not only about the impact of climate change, but also about what we might have to give up if we believe in it. Um, so for a lot of people that believe denialist mess messages, um, it's because it sort of challenges a lot of their beliefs, their identities, partly linked with their political identity as well. Because it's been so politicised, a lot of the parties on the picture on the right of centre, and this is a particularly something in the US, but we see it a, a bit over here, um, tend to promote those more denialist messages. And so if you are associated with, for example, a Republican Party in the US, then it's almost a badge of identity that you would deny climate change. So it does become kind of bound up very much with those group identities as well. But but it is unfortunate that we have to live in this politicised world. Yeah, it is rather, isn't it? Is there anything, do you think, that can be done to change the minds of these hardened sceptics? Well, I think for people who are really hardened sceptics, like they really have decided that they don't believe that there is a thing called anthropogenic climate change, uh, there's not much you can really do to get them to believe in the issue. They have um, probably quite entrenched views. And as I say, they could be bound up with sort of their identity and uh, so on. Um, on the other hand, depending on what you want to do with your communication, if you're trying to get people to save energy, for example, then you can do that in ways which um, don't necessarily talk about climate change. And then you can get, and research shows you can get climate deniers to save energy, but just by talking about it in terms of, what it can do for you know to save them money or because it's healthy or because it's good for sort of social relationships and so on so you can if that's what you're what you want to do with your communication is more behaviorally focused then you can work with deniers in that way but i, I don't think there's much you can do and, we, and certainly our research suggests that deniers will just look at a message of climate change and pretty much immediately screen it as rubbish and um reject it because they they, they just because of this is the way in which we we look at information is it's very much through an ideological filter. That's really interesting. You can get some people to inadvertently save the planet by showing them that it serves their own needs rather than just the wider communities. But for those of us uh, who accept the science and want to make a difference, do you have any tips on maybe one thing that we could do to change our way of life today that could make a significant impact? Yeah, uh, I think, you know, people will have different views about what is the best thing to do. But um, if I was to say maybe 
the top three things people could do. Uh, I would say maybe first of all, eat less meat. Um, the the upside of that is not only it's good for climate change, but also it's it's healthier. So even if you don't believe in climate change, you can you can do it and it will be good for you. Um, but also reducing the amount that we travel, particularly by air, and um, having more energy efficient homes um, would be a third one. So yeah, I think the meat one for me is it's it's quite controversial in a way, and I think a lot of people don't know how much of an impact eating meat has on the climate. Um, but I think just because of all these co-benefits like the health, um, it, it's probably be my it will probably be my top one. Okay, why do, why does it have such a big impact on the climate then to to, to consume meat? Uh, methane, the most potent greenhouse gas, is uh, one of the significant byproducts of um, animal agriculture, and it's also generally quite an inefficient process of producing food. So I mean, if you think about, you have to produce crops to feed animals that feed us. You could just eat the crops. Um, but uh, one report I've seen, uh, I think it was a meta-analysis, showed that we could reduce our greenhouse gases by about 45% if we went from a, a sort of typical diet to a vegan diet. So um, it would be a huge impact. That is a really challenging choice for people to make. It can make such a huge difference though. Do you have an idea of how to get the message across on something that might so go against someone's current way of life? Yeah, and I think, I think to, to be honest, that the strongest argument is the health one. I think you just have to look at how strong the relationship is between red and particularly processed meat consumption and various types of cancer that I think even, and, and it, as it happens, red meat is the worst for climate change as well. So there's really quite a strong argument just from the health point of view to, as a first step to reduce the amount of red meat that we eat. So I think that's, the, in terms of communication implications, that would be the way to, to go. Thank you so much to Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh and Professor Mario Molina for joining us here on the Physics World podcast. And I'm delighted to say that we've just expanded the Physics World website, physicsworld.com, by taking the content and the people making the content from Medical Physics Web and Environmental Research Web to be all under one banner at physicsworld.com. You can go and have a look around the website and find articles and resources for many more aspects of the world of physics as of today. I'm off to cook some lentils and we'll be back next month when we'll be discovering some of the exciting developments in the UK space sector. Thank you very much for listening. Physics World.